You're listening to 340B Unscripted. Hey, everyone. Thanks for listening to 340B Unscripted. I'm Greg Wilson here with my co-host, Rob Nahoopy. Hey, Hoopy, what's going on, man? Uh, not much. Just uh, finishing up some audits this week and uh, back and ready to, ready to talk about a hot topic for sure. Big big news in the 340B world. We're going to talk about the, the Genesis rolling. I know we kind of teased it on LinkedIn maybe last week, but I know we've, we've both been busy working and also digesting all the commentary out there from various vendors and 340B subject matter experts on what Genesis means. So we'll kind of give everybody our take uh, today. Um, first, some kind of news and, and noteworthy items, uh, some changes to contract pharmacy restrictions. So Eli Lilly is backing off of their more tightened contract pharmacy restrictions in the state of Arkansas. So another example of state-level um, legislation protecting covered entities from some of the manufacturer impact. Good news, right? I think so. And, uh, you know, definitely heard from some of the um, the hospital organizations that uh, probably looking to expand that to multiple states um, creates a lot of a lot of battlegrounds uh, for, for the manufacturers to have to work in um, and uh, oppose. So it feels like it's not unlike what we saw with PBM discrimination, all right? It starts off with a couple of states and, and there's some some success. And yep. then we see all the other states kind of jump on. So yeah, I guess we'll see how um, things pan out for 2024 if we see a lot of legislation at a state level um, regarding the same topic uh, for manufacturer restrictions and see if that resolves the issue since it seems to be working in Arkansas and Louisiana pretty well. Yeah. So in terms of federal uh, updates or federal legislative updates, nothing really moving with the exception of on the Senate Help Committee. So uh, Senator Bill Cassidy, Republican out of Louisiana, ranking member of the Help Committee, He's, you know, he initially submitted an inquiry to a couple of hospitals earlier this fall. Now that inquiry is extended to some community health centers. So one uh, CHC on the East Coast, one on the West Coast, asking for them to provide data by December 7th. So not a quick turnaround time, especially with the federal holiday right around oh the gosh. corner. Um, you know, comprehensive financial data, uh, operational data, lots of uh, details. He wants these two covered entities to provide. So... Looks like uh, grantees are not uh, exempt from Bill Cassidy's interest in kind of peeling back some understanding around the 340B program. Yeah, yeah, that's uh, unexpected since FQHCs already have some requirements under their grant with yeah. HRSA as far as providing charity care for anyone less than 200% of the poverty level. Also, their 340B savings is sort of included in their grant dollars that they have to account for. So it felt like FQHCs already had a decent amount of uh, transparency. And so it was surprising to see him um, inquire both. Maybe, maybe he just wanted to be seen fair and partial. Um, and maybe he wants to compare hospitals versus FQHCs. Curious where yeah, he goes with that. Yeah, curious if it even comes to, you know, the, the inquiry even gets brought to discussion at the help committee. I mean, he's a, you, you know, Bernie Sanders is running the the help committee. This hasn't been on their agenda. You wonder if this is just posturing maybe for, you know, Senator Cassidy looking at an opportunity to kind of set himself up in the future if the Senate maybe, you know, regains control of the that that chamber of Congress and, and can push some of this discussion forward. But the the commentary that I've heard really hasn't indicated that this is really going to make make a lot of difference or move forward. I guess. Have you heard anything yeah. differently? 
No, not really. I, yeah, I'm curious to see what he even does with it. But, uh, you know, I, you've got the Senate six that are more pro 340B. And, and um, so I, I, I think he, he'll have a little uphill battle if he really attacks the program. And, and, you know, at least from my perspective, you know, I, the health system I was working with um, this week, uh, again, large health system running in the red, like hospitals are struggling right now. It, yeah. it just feels like the wrong time yeah. to start decreasing reimbursement or increasing expense, if you will, from a, from a 340B perspective. It's just, I feel like a lot of health systems are struggling right now. And, um, you know, I think anything the government or or anyone can do to help them stay afloat is actually the right thing to do right now. Um, still reeling from reimbursement, uh, higher costs with uh, nursing staff and, and other staff. I mean, we're even seeing, I'm hearing pharmacy tech staff is another area that we're seeing shortages. Um, yeah. Some some chains are providing uh, bonuses like still, which is blows me away. It's been so long since we've seen bonuses in pharmacy. Uh, sign out, sign on bonuses. Uh, and so we're starting to see that still. And it just seems like, yeah, healthcare's in a tough spot right now with costs. So, you know, when we have a program in 340B, they can help lower costs. Um, and there's the potential risk for, you know, legislators to, 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 to impact that in a negative way. I just think it's just bad timing. Yeah. I mean, the tactic too, for asking for all of this data, I mean, it is a really inordinate number, number of data elements that they're requesting these covered entities submit going back five years. A lot of times, yeah, I mean that, that that's a, a a big lift, uh, you know, from an administrative perspective, and and in the setting of a uh, you know, technician and pharmacist shortages, a lot of times the folks that are you know managing the three forty B program, they're pulled into some of those dispensing activities or patient care level activities. So, you know, it just seems a little bit um, insensitive, I guess, to the current climate to make covered entities dig deep for all of this data that really is outside the scope of what HRSA would ever look at during a HRSA audit. Yeah, no, that, I agree. I agree. We'll see, though. I, you know, that's the hard part. We we actually don't know what um, Senator Cassidy's goal is with all of this and if it's going to result in some legislation or is he just fact-finding so that as these bills come through, he can more intelligently speak to, you know, what where the, where, where the changes need to occur, if any. All right. I think that's it for news. Let's get into the major topic of this week's episode, Genesis case. So we've talked about the Genesis case for a while now. I think our very first podcast episode focused on patient definition. We spent a lot of time kind of, you know, pontificating on what the Genesis case might mean for 340B covered entities. We've got a ruling. So we can have have a ruling now (laughs) and we've got a ruling and heavily in favor of the covered entity. So um, first, let's kind of recap the timeline here. So and I learned something by reading the ruling that I didn't really understand or know about the 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 saga to begin with. So Genesis is audited by HRSA back in 2017. They had findings for both um, auditable records and for diversion. And because of the auditable records finding, which I didn't realize they had in their HRSA audit, they were given a corrective action plan, or they, I mean, they were given, uh, they, they were asked to create a corrective action plan. And be, by nature of Genesis disputing the diversion finding, they did not put a cap together and were subsequently terminated from the program. But the eligibility finding of the auditable records is really what pulled them out of the program temporarily. Is that how you read it, Rob? Yeah, I didn't. I didn't get into that much detail on it, but at least yes, initially. Yeah. But interesting though that they vacated. You know, Hersey eventually vacates the audit. Yeah, and so it all gets reversed out anyway. But yeah, um, because, and and I guess what I don't know is if they challenged right. Because if you get a finding and you challenge it, you don't yeah. have to provide a cap for your other findings, right? Yeah. Hersey. In fact, we did that once at the very beginning. We didn't know, 
So we're like, okay, we're challenging this, this finding. So let's go and write a cap on the other ones. And we submit it. And then Herso's like, yeah, don't submit a cap if you're challenging a finding because we have to issue a brand new final report. So that's where I got confused. Maybe they didn't challenge. Maybe they're doing a legal challenge and not an actual written challenge. And that means it didn't put the actual cap requirement at 60 days, which is a 60-day requirement from your uh, when you receive your findings um, to respond with a cap. So yeah, a little unclear of how that occurred or what happened there, but yeah, I do that agree out, that. But, the, but yeah, interesting that there were two different types of findings, one yeah. including eligibility finding, which could result in your termination. But Genesis, you know, they dispute the, well, they, they, they don't agree with the audit. Um, ultimately, HRSA uh, terminates them from the program. Genesis files a lawsuit in 2018. Um, through the court proceedings, HRSA vacates uh, the audit and reinstates Genesis into the program. And they ask the court to dismiss the case as moot because Genesis is now back in the 340B program. Genesis appeals the dismissal saying, look, there's nothing that is stopping HRSA from auditing us to these same standards in the future. They could come back and they could cite us with diversion findings based on their patient definition interpretation in the future. We need the court to make a declaratory judgment on the legality of patient definition. And we've got that court decision uh, as of November 3rd. So um, Rob, kind of walk us through what you see as the, the court summary judgments um, rendered by the judge. Yeah, and I'll need your help uh, on here because uh, I have read through them all, but I know you've read through them as well. So definitely help me if uh, I miss anything there. But, you know, there were there were, there are four distinct um, areas that they covered. Um, and, and the first one, basically, you know, and I'll just read it. But the court agreed with Genesis that um, the only statutory requirement for 340B eligibility of a person is that the person be a patient of a covered entity. Um, as stated in the statute. So, right. So the person has to be a patient. And so there's an argument that it was, it was over an overreach or an overstep to say, to add all these additional requirements in addition to being a patient. And so I think that was, that's a significant there. That's, that's probably the big one. And one of the bigger ones in there, yep. uh, because what does that mean? Um, what yep. else do you need to be a patient in? and what, where, when does it apply? Um, and for how yeah. long? Right. Yeah. Right. That's the other question, right? How long? Yeah. yeah. Um, um, the, any other thoughts on number one? No, no, no. And then, then number two is, uh, you know, uh, Genesis, you know, they wanted the court to declare that any prescription from any source is available to a patient of a covered entity. And the court agreed with that. Uh, there is no requirement for the covered entity to have initiated a healthcare service that resulted in the prescription. So again, that was the, um, the, the, the language that it, it was included in Genesis's HRSA audit uh, report indicating that in order for a patient to be part of the covered entity, there needs to be a uh, an episode of healthcare service uh, that results in the qualified prescription. And the court says, "Look, no, those are those are completely independent things. You, the prescription doesn't need to be pursuant to uh, some type of healthcare service." Another big win for Genesis. Yeah, and so number three. So we should point out there's four, and the and the court agreed with three of the four. So the third one they agreed with was. Um, Genesis argued um, and wanted the court to declare any and all interpretations of guidance of HRSA in contradiction of the plain wording of the statute would be unlawful and unenforceable as a matter of law. And of course, the court agreed and said um, the agency interpretations are in contradiction of the plain wording of a statute and not entitled to a difference and are not enforceable. So that was a pretty big one, right? This, that, so between those three, they're really saying, yeah, HRSA is really enforcing more than they should be allowed to enforce. Um, and um, so I, I, I thought that was also important um, as they talk about plain language of the statute. Yeah. 
you know, and then that, that the, the fourth um, declaration that was sought by Genesis was to uh, declare that HRSA doesn't have rulemaking authority that's necessary to implement interpretations and restrictions to the plain language of the 340B statute. And that's where the court disagreed. So the court mm-hmm. said that HRSA does have authority to implement uh, various interpretations with regard to the statutory term uh, patient, um, but the interpretation that HRSA takes must be consistent with the plain language of the statute and the intent of Congress. So um, we're essentially saying HRSA's, you know, not right here, but they have the ability to make determinations around what patient eligibility means as long as they don't deviate from the the plain language of the statute. Yeah, yeah. And so, and, and, and more importantly, they they said that the, um, the agency or HRSA in this case actually not only has the authority to implement its interpretations that they want them to, right? Yeah. That that was what the court said is that they're actually expecting that Hearst is going to redo their expectations around patient definition. Um, and and of course they did throw in there, but whatever they do has to be in line with the plain language of the statute. So yeah. they're almost saying, look, kind of give my hand slap saying you guys went too far, go yeah. back and redo it, right? You get a redo, um, yeah. but when you redo it, you better do it right. Yeah. I mean, in the court was clear that, you know, it's not up to the courts and it's not up to the federal administrative agencies to, you know, define these things. It's a congressional requirement to kind of outline what these, um, you know, limitations are through, um, you know, through the legislative process. So again, kind of invoking the the need for Congress maybe to to get involved here and, and uh, you know, uh, address the, this issue of patient definition. So I, I can't, you know, the one thing that's up, up in the air to me is how long does HRSA have to respond? Um, we've heard um, from some groups that they think, you know, roughly 90 days is typical um, when when they get a, a re- request or requirement like this from the courts. And so, you know, we'll see um, because and, and the one thing, you know, I, we, we've been talking about is, is does this apply to all patients? Because there's different patient care areas. Um, right. So we, we have primary care. We have specialty care, both ambulatory, but different in primary care to specialty. And then the third area is acute care, right? So that's your hospital settings where you're only seeing a patient for a short amount of time. And there typically isn't longitudinal or ambulatory care follow-up. I mean, there's follow-up care, but not necessarily tied to the hospital visits. And and how does this all apply to that? Is HRSA going to address all three of those situations? Or are they only going to address the specific situation that that Genesis brought forward, which is more around primary care? You know, interestingly, and I think when you know a lot of the a lot of the commentary that's out on social media about this, as the case uh, court ruling was um, was made public, and people were kind of you know jumping in to to share their their insights. Um, you know, I, I think maybe maybe the the context of a lot of the commentary was, wow, this opens up the door for all covered entities to start qualifying everything, um, and that's really not the case. The court was very limited in the scope of its review. This ruling only applies to Hearst's interpretation of patient definition in the case of Genesis. So it's not a broad ruling around the legality of patient definition. Um, so I think some covered entities now are kind of struggling to understand well, what changes can we make out of this ruling. I think right now it, there, you know, it's not clear that there are any programmatic changes covered entities really need or should consider. Um, because we just don't know how HRSA is going to respond. Yeah. Yeah. And again, and just to highlight, um, there's there's two specific things, right? As we talk about what applies to Genesis. And then, you know, as we were discussing, Greg, you, you brought up the point of, you know, where what what's the jurisdiction of the court? So there's all yeah. these things. But the one that I'm still that I always remind people, especially hospitals, is that Genesis is an FQHC. And their argument was primarily centered around primary care. 
Um, I, I guess I have to decide, if, remember, if they had specialty care and were extrapolating it pr primarily on primary care and stating that as a primary care provider, they, they kind of do have ongoing responsibility for care. They just, and right, they can meet the patient definition as, as is um, described in the statute, which is much, much less specific than what HRSA has for their 340B patient definition. Um, but the second piece is they also argue the fact that as a FQHC, they do have a medical home type model. Just for those that aren't familiar, that's that's where you know, an insurance says, okay, we're going to give you these thousand patients and we're going to pay you X amount for those thousand patients. And in that payment, it's almost a per member per month rate. So every single month based on those thousand patients, now if the patient count goes up or down, you, your payment gets adjusted. But based on that per member per month rate, it's going to include a variety of services. In their case, prescriptions were included. So if they had a primary care patient in their medical home getting a PMPM, and then they go to a specialist or a hospital and get a prescription, well, those patients are supposed to have all their prescriptions filled by the FQHC that's getting the PMPM because that's what the insurance is saying. Hey, we're going to give you this, this, this chunk of change per patient. You got to cover all those prescriptions. And if they sign that contract, now they have to pay for them. So, uh, you know, the, the, but their argument would, was, well, so are we, if these aren't 340 to be eligible and these aren't considered, you know, part of our care, then they, then we still have to cover them based on the, the, the per member per rate or per month rate. And then yeah. on top of then they have to buy it at what regular retail versus 340B. It just, it just didn't make sense from their perspective. Now, at least historically, HRSA hasn't used financial as a mechanism for qualification. So maybe that doesn't really apply. Maybe they're just adding that as extra argument for why it should be. But, but I, I would guess a HRSA wouldn't use financial as a mechanism to cause qualification. So I personally feel at the end of the day, it might just be more centered around the primary care argument that you're responsible for the care of the patient yeah. uh, holistically. Do, do you think that that, uh, would that include primary care rendered by hospital covered entities? So if you've got a primary care, internal medicine clinic, family practice clinic, even HIV clinic that's, you know, seeing patients as, you know, primary care specialists, you know, for, for HIV care, um, may, maybe that's where this ruling could extrapolate to impact hospital covered entities? I think so. Um, now, of course, we don't know for sure. So I just want to put that out there. This yeah. isn't, we, we don't know, but but if I had to guess, if I was betting, I'd probably say, yeah, my guess is primary care is likely the area that has the best chance. Now that's if it doesn't get limited to a, the court geographical area or get limited to just Genesis. And, you know, when we had Emily on, she mentioned that, right? There's a couple of scenarios. One is it could just literally be limited to just Genesis and not even apply to anybody else. Yeah. Um, but if it is more broadly applicable and, and HRSA has got to come out with some patient definition, maybe I can see where primary care might be the focus. Um, the other one is our critical access hospitals. They have a lot of rural health clinics, yeah, rural clinics or yep. big primary care. They almost function like an FQHC for those areas. Um, so that'd be another good area where I think it could apply. And, um, you know, I, I would say if, you know, I, I agree with you and I think we're all in agreement. It's, I kind of think it's a little early to actually implement anything based on this right now. Yeah. I really think, think we need to wait for HRSA's response. Um, but if someone needs to or wants to, I think primary care be the, is really the only area I'm actually comfortable saying, okay, I can see how it all fits and it's close enough to what Genesis does that I'd be more comfortable in the area. Not saying I'm fully comfortable, but more comfortable for primary care. Acute care and specialty, I think I, I just feel like we got to wait on those two. Just a little too different from what Genesis' situation is. Yeah, I agree. You know, another practical consideration following Genesis is how covered entities should define ongoing relationships. So patients, part of your covered entity, you know, this comes up, I think, very commonly when we're auditing covered entities um, or working with, with them for various types of support, you know, how far back can my visit be 
to qualify a newly written prescription. You know, I think anecdotally, it's probably most common intervals, probably 12 months. You know, you got to have a visit within 12 months. But there was some discussion about that in the Genesis case. Genesis included a 24-month uh, window of eligibility in their policies and procedures. And the court referenced, I think it was an AMA standard of, of three years. So maybe this is an area where covered entities can begin to evaluate um, a more liberal definition of what constitutes an ongoing relationship with their patient population. Yeah, agreed. And of course, I'll throw it in there because you know I have to. Um, uh, the Morford letter does say two years is too long, but arguably so almost two, quite a, up to two years. Um, now, that was more acute care. So even I would say longitudinal ambulatory care, like primary care, two years would make sense. Um, if Morford was saying two years for acute care would make sense. So just one piece. The other one, which um, we I ran into, which I think is interesting, that also kind of lends itself to two years, and we may have mentioned it on a previous episode, is that when you look at FQHCs and the requirement to have a lay or a patient on their board, right? So they have this requirement that when you have this board that oversees care, and they don't want just clinical people on there or, or FQHC-based healthcare staff. They want a lay person who actually receives care at the FQHC. So they want this lay person to be a patient of the FQHC. And and one of the requirements, I don't know if it's HRSA or somebody else through the FQHC grant, but there is um, a definition of a patient, and it includes having had a visit within 24 months or two years. So even to be a board member, you had to have had a visit within two years. And so again, that's another two-year argument. So I would say you're right. At minimum, I think two years might be fine. Yeah. Um, the three years, I'm still not comfortable with three years, uh, but uh, you know, there, that's one. Um, there's a three-year record retention requirement um, that's come up before. Remarks, if there's a three-year record retention, then wouldn't that mean that three years would be okay? Potentially, that seems like a bigger stretch, but but that three-year number's out there. And so, yeah, so I, I think trying to define that and being comfortable with that yeah. does would probably help with current state because through past COVID, we know patients don't always go in within 12 months. And, um, and, but you're, the, those providers are still providing care. And so to have something, if you're restricting yourself to 12 months, you might be losing opportunity for prescriptions that truly are for your patients and that you have responsibility of care for. Do you think that's a, uh, criteria of qualification in your program that needs to be outlined in policy or can that be baked into your standard operating procedures and, and leave it somewhat ambiguous or, or generalized in policy language? Yeah, I, I mean, you know, we we always say it's not like joint commission for hospitals, um, but uh, if HRSA hasn't dropped, put a line in the sand, and HRSA's never said 12 months has to be the number yeah. that I'm aware of, uh, that's published anyway. <laughs> I guess it could have been anecdotally shared at some point, but um, not that's going to be um, enforceable um, since it's not in the federal register as a rule or a, um, a statute. So if that's the case, then I agree by putting 12 months or something narrow in there, you're defining it. And now HRSA can hold you accountable to your policy. Yeah, I, we, we, we didn't talk about that. That was an unscripted comment, Greg, but but I kind of like the idea of being, unless you have to, why even put a line in sand? You could just make the argument, they're our patient. Yeah. Um, and then be able to write an SOP or verbally be able to share with the um, with the HRSA auditor if you get audited, kind of what your definition of a patient is, which could be, you know, a visit within two years or a, a, in theory, a visit within three years, providing you can show ongoing care, right? To yep. me, a lot of it is looking at the medical records saying, okay, yeah, they had a visit 30 months ago, but they, we've done refills, we've done lab visits, we've had a lot yeah. of telephone consults. Calls, yeah, it's the, to the totality visit. of documentation around yeah. that patient's medical care, I think, helps helps bolster that argument and gives you a little bit of flexibility when there are patient-specific circumstances that prevent them from coming in every 12 months or every two years or whatever it might be, so. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, agreed. Well, another practical consideration that folks are debating right now is whether or not the dispensing of a drug from an in-house pharmacy is enough 
to create a relationship. So if I just go to the in-house retail pharmacy of a covered entity, does that substantiate or uh, define me as a patient of the covered entity and that prescription can be qualified? It's a big, it's a big question because you've got, you know, employee prescriptions and other um, other, you know, cohorts of patients that are probably being serviced at in-house pharmacies that maybe don't have medical visits at those clinics. What are your thoughts around does a dispense satisfy the criteria for being part of the patient or patient relationship, I guess? Yeah. I mean, I don't think so because it's hard to say you have responsible for care just because you dispense a prescription. Yeah. Um, in my opinion. Now, I, I could be wrong there. Um, you know, of course, the patient definition, the current 340 patient definition talks about other than dispense, just dispensing, right? HRSA tried, tried to put, or at least HRSA put it in there for all these years, that if all you're doing is dispensing a drug for a patient, that doesn't qualify as a 342 eligible dispense. Yeah. And so, um, and, and you and you don't, I mean, I guess you have a medical record in the pharmacy information system, but you don't in a clinical information system. So you don't have all that background and responsibility for care, but I, I could, but, you know, just to play devil's advocate on this one or steel man it uh, for people that are thinking about that, in theory, the the if if it's an in-house retail pharmacy, not a contract pharmacy, but in-house retail, that pharmacy information system is a medical record of sorts. And if you're collecting information in there, and and even you know, pharmacists is arguably providing clinical yeah, services. I mean, there's a clinical it. adjudication of that prescription. So yeah. I, I I always thought like, no, a dispense transaction is not going to meet your definition of patient eligibility. But the pharmacist in me says, well, why not? Why why doesn't the the clinical judgment that's made during a dispensing transaction satisfy, you know, some care that's being provided for that, that covered, that, that patient at the covered entity. So, yeah, no, I agree. I, cause, um, right. And then on top of that, I mean, we're doing clinical work or we're, we're looking at drug interactions. We're providing clinical counseling. We're yeah. looking at the indications and making sure it's appropriate and dosing is appropriate. There's, there's clinical work being provided. So that's why, you know, just, just the devil's advocate that one. I mean, I, I, I think it could be argued that, uh, that pharmaceutical care being provided in the pharmacy, could qualify again. I think it has to be an in-house retail pharmacy, not a contract pharmacy, because a contract pharmacy wouldn't technically be owned by the covered entity. Yeah. Um, and so hard to say that you actually have a responsibility for care there. All right. I think that's it as far as the practical considerations. Let's let's recap some of the next steps. So, in terms of Hearst's response, you know, there, there's been discussion, and I've heard people argue that it's likely that Hersa will appeal, and maybe it's unlikely that Hersa will appeal. I don't exactly know what the Strategic play would be for HRSA to to appeal or not, but that's one potential response. Um, you know, I think a lot of folks are wondering if HRSA is going to, you know, post some type of notice uh, with regard to potential action or publish new guidelines uh, that you know refine their interpretation of patient definition that's more consistent with the uh, the plain language of the statute. Big concern that I uh, I've heard some folks voice. I had this myself: is how are manufacturers going to respond? Uh, you know, if you know, people are taking a more liberal kind of extrapolation of the Genesis ruling to all covered entities that opens up the opportunity for more 340B sales. Are manufacturers going to try to uh, mitigate uh, a broadening of, of 340B use by implementing some, some more restrictive uh, policies? We've seen lots of policies around contract pharmacy provisions, but are we going to start seeing um, manufacturers limit access to 340B price drugs through a covered entity's own uh, bill to ship to accounts? Yeah, I sure hope not. Um, but you're right, yeah. right? It feels like it's a chess game. Um, you know, manufacturers make a move, covered entities make a move, manufacturers make a move. Um, and, uh, you know, alternative delivery models was the the covered entities move. We saw um, uh, manufacturers start talking about trying to restrict that. 
And this is going to be an interesting one. It's a pretty big move. I don't know what manufacturers can actually do here, especially in in-house retail pharmacies. I guess they can audit, but if HRSA can't issue a finding, I don't see how manufacturers could argue against. If HRSA can't do it, I don't see how a manufacturer could yep. create more stringent criteria than HRSA is allowed to do. So I think this is going to be a big deal for manufacturers. What what I'm worried about is do manufacturers just tighten down the contract pharmacy even further? Yeah. And then, you know, and what we're already seeing is this creates a lot of work for covered entities to figure out, okay, are we going to just open up our own in-house retail pharmacy so we can decrease risk and continue to take care of our patients? Um, and, uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's going to be a, it's going to be a chess match and, and, and I don't, I don't know what else the manufacturers have, have up their sleeve, but I have, I have an idea that they might have something else up their sleeve. We just haven't heard it yet. Yeah. Um, yep. So we'll see what that is. That'll be fodder for future podcast episodes. Yeah, of course. Fortunately. We never run out of material. <laughs> Busy couple of weeks. The HRSA notice regarding child site registrations, which I know we've covered, and then a week later we get the the Genesis rolling. It would be nice if they'd spread out some of these developments over the course of the year, so you know we have time to 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 talk about them. But you know, I know we've we've shared our thoughts around what covered entities need to do. I mean, clearly this is an area where we're going to have to wait and see how HRSA is going to respond. Um, and we we've, we've continued to advocate that covered entities look at the alternate strategies. Um, to avoid manufacturer pricing restrictions, including potentially calculating the the cost benefit of opening up in-house uh, pharmacies. But Rob, you know, again, we're not giving anybody advice here, but if covered entities listening and they're toying around with the idea of expanding their patient definition, qualifying a large number of more prescriptions than they had been prior to Genesis, what are the risks they need to be thinking about um, if they're going to move forward with taking a more progressive approach. Yeah, I, I do. I do think one is, um, you know, what if HRSA comes back with something maybe not that wide open? Um, and, and, and again, you know, what mentioned earlier, if they're looking at that um, expanding their 340 to be patient definition, you know, in areas more than primary care, I do think there's a questionable, a question of whether HRSA is going to go that far. Um, or is it going to be limited to primary care? That's that's my biggest question I have out there is, is this going to be broadly applicable or is it going to be just applicable to the a very similar situation to Genesis? And um, and so then that would result in potential diversion and payback. And we always say, well, the paybacks, you know, you're just paying back what you would have lost, but that's kind of true, but not true because a lot of times you are paying back whack, right? Manufacturers aren't going to let you do retail, especially if you're a dish hospital, you're going to end up paying back whack. And so there's that extra cost um, and then on top of that, just the time and labor to do it. It's it's a ton of work. Yeah. And so But historically no civil monetary penalty. So, right, right, yeah, right. It's yeah. literally just paying back the delta or difference between yeah. 340B and WAC. Um, unless you can argue GPO or retail pricing, which which you know I know a lot of people will will try, especially if they're not subject to the GPO prohibition and, and needing to do WAC accounts. But harder for a dish to argue that. Um, because if it's a if it's an outpatient, then in theory you it should probably be that neutral account. All right. Any thoughts from you yeah. on that? Because yeah, that's because I, I, I was trying to think, okay, if I were at a covered entity still, um, and I was, you know, at least had some decision-making authority, what would I do? And um, I, I'm curious what you, before I answer, what would you do? Yeah, I think, you know, you got to get legal and compliance on board because, you know, if we move forward, good chance that we're going to, you know, be subjected to HERS audit findings if we're audited. And we need to be comfortable uh, challenging findings and doing what Genesis did and did and um, initiate maybe litigation if we're unsuccessful in getting a uh, a finding reversed, you know, and you know, looking at capital if we have to, you know, for for taking savings for areas of the program that maybe are subject to some potential repayment risk, do we have the capital to 
make the repayments moving forward. You know, another consideration is our what what's the the financial um health of our covered entity now? Is this something we need to do? Do we need to expand our 340B program now to prevent services from being shut down or doors from our clinics to be closed. I, I think that should certainly be part of the the equation. If you know you're you're struggling to stay open and keep the lights on, you know, there there may be opportunity to move forward here. And uh if you've got the backing of your your legal and compliance representatives to to defend maybe some changes to your program, now might be the time. But yeah, no I agree, right? Because yeah, everyone's in a different place financially and, and we've talked to some covered entities and health systems that are Normally, they probably wouldn't have, um, you know, like made a decision to submit data to the ESP program when, yeah. when that was more of an option, right? Nobody wanted to do it. Yeah. Left, not really valuable at this point, but yeah. um, right. A lot of people could rest, you know, just say, hey, we're going to try and stay and do the right thing and not do it. But at some point, they're like, we're just losing too too many savings. And that's what was keeping some of our yeah. clinics and us financially viable. And right. And the health systems have to look at every nook and cranny to try and get back into a positive margin because you can only run the red for so long um, yeah. before you have to start cutting services. And so scary place. I agree. I think that has to be a big part of the equation. What's the risk versus benefit for you as an organization um, to, to, to make those decisions. All right. Well, we got the Thanksgiving holiday coming up and then you're at ASHP. Tell everybody what uh, they can find from Spendend at the uh, big mid-year. Yeah, well, I got two. One's a really small one, so probably not a ton of people. But if you happen to be, I think on November 30th, um, I'll actually be at the HFMA, I think, uh, and part of NEAH out of out of uh, kind of New England area, so Boston. I think it's the Boston, Rhode, Rhode Island chapter. So I'm actually doing a little 340 presentation um, with one of the Dartmouth-Hitchcock um, team members, and we're going to talk 340B at that conference. Not a big one. It's in Groton, Connecticut. So if you happen to be there, uh, maybe there's a couple of you out there listening, definitely stop by and say hi. Um, I'm going to do a little – they asked me to do a little tabletop, so it's just me, but I'll be hanging out with a little tabletop down in I, – I hopefully I'm saying that right. Groton? Groton? Connecticut? I don't know. They say oh, they pronounce towns really weird in the New England area. <laughs> they They do not sound anywhere close to what they look like on paper. Well, our New England friends, you can correct me on the right pronunciation of that place. Um, and if you're there in person, you can correct me in person. Some of our friends from Brockton will will uh, will call us out on our. Uh, That's right, yeah, yeah. signature. Uh, yeah. The, yeah, they'll the, love uh, Chris and the team out there. So. Um, that's one. And then the following week, the first week of December. Um, but before uh, we go, get into mid year, what are you what are you presenting? Do you have a particular topic that you're presenting? Yeah, no, we're. Um, so, uh, person I'm presenting with, uh, she is uh, Kristen. She's presenting. Um, on her 340B compliance and, okay. and kind of what they're doing around 340B compliance um, and, and readiness. And I'm kind of hitting hot topics. So we're going to talk about manufacturers. Um, so, so, and so I left it kind of open. And so we'll probably cover a lot of things we cover on our podcast because not everyone listens to the podcast. I'm not sure why. I guess everyone listening listens. So that's I'm preaching to the wrong uh, audience here. But um, but yeah, we'll cover a lot of things we cover. So it makes it easy to present, I'll be honest, at conferences because we always stay up to date on all these hot topics. And, and when I'm working with covered entities, like, gosh, you have so much information. I was like, yeah, it's really gotten better with the podcast because we, right, you and I got, we've got to do our research. It forces us to read the news a little bit. So, yeah. So it's yeah. been fun. It, it's been great. But that's what we're doing there. And um, so I'm doing hot topics and, and, and her audit updates. So we're going to do that, right? There's been definitely, and I think we've talked about this. If you're, if you're a location that has lots of child sites and you're carving in multiple states, mm-hmm. HRSA, the last couple audit her audits, they wanted a UBO4 from every single child site and every mm-hmm. single state that you have listed. So if you've got 10 states listed and you got 40 or 20 child sites, they're expecting 200 uh, UB documents of your hospital. Now, 
Granted, a lot of your child sites might not bill out-of-state fee-for-service Medicaid, but if you've got it listed on OPACE on your MEF, they're going to ask for it, and then you're going to have to confirm that you don't have any billing. So it takes quite a bit of work, and so we're going to just provide those updates that we've seen be a little more um, – take up more time than in the past. Um, so that was a big one uh, for our, one of our last clients was getting it, all those fees ready. I've had to ask for the Medicaid enrollment form. So if you've got a child site that doesn't have any Medicaid fee-for-service billing activity yeah. during the audit period – uh, they said, okay, you don't have to give us a UBO4, but we're going to need to see the Medicaid uh, bill, billing form uh, or enrollment form um, and then compare that to the Medicaid exclusion file. And we know that's one of the top type of uh, HRSA audit findings. Three, 30 some percent of covered entities have had Medicaid exclusion file findings over the last yeah. couple of years. So. NPIs don't match up, right? That's what they're confirming. But but it was hard to find those NPIs. Yeah. Right? The, yeah. the enrollment letter for child sites. They, so we have an enrollment letter for the hospital. They're like, no, we want it for the child sites. Like, I don't think we have a separate one. It's just a HOPD. It's a hospital outpatient department, but yeah, yeah lots of, so we're going to cover stuff like that. Um, so yeah, it should be good. I, I've never been to um, Massachusetts um, and Rhode Island. So I'm going to get those two knocked off my bucket list. Good. And then mid-year the following week. Yes. Yeah. ASHP mid-year clinical meeting. Um, I'll be there. We've got some other crew, uh, team members there, a lot of our Trula team. So anyone who's interested in our Trula service, uh, we're actually going to have demos that we have there live. So Definitely reach awesome. out. Um, if you're just going to be there, come stop by our booth. We're at booth 1500. Super easy, 1500. Um, you know, we'll have, we have the normal local swag and stickers and all that stuff. I'll be bringing the Utah uh, mint truffles and um, and toffee truffles. If, if those are familiar with those at the, the coalition conference, we'll have those there. If And at minimum, just stop by and say hi. And we can talk, talk shop and see how ASHP is going for you. So definitely stop by. Come see me at uh, booth 1500 at ASHP mid-year in Anaheim. You going to D Disney? While you're there? Nah, I'm flying out Sunday late and uh, just going to do conference, conference, conference and fly yeah. back Wednesday. Busy week. Not enough time for seeing Mickey no Mouse. Disney for me. Plus, I don't know. I, it's, it's more fun when I bring the kids, you know, or the teenagers. I guess they're not kids anymore. All right, Rob. It's good catching up with you. We'll be back again in two weeks. I think uh, next episode, we're going to have uh, Kat from our team kind of talk a little bit about staff augmentation services that we're providing for covered entities and how we can help with compliance. Yeah. And then I think we've got end of the year uh, summary. So I'm working a on a recap up. of all the things that have developed over the last 12 months. It's a lot. So, you know, I, you know last year was a lot. I feel like we, we do have a lot to <laughs> to cover. It's uh, crazy. More maybe, bad than good, I think. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, this might be a long episode, that last one. Yeah. It might be a two-parter. We'll have to see how much, you know, <laughs> Aiden doesn't like us going over an hour. So we're almost at an hour now. So oh, we gotta, we're going to get in trouble. We got to wrap it up. So, yeah. all right, Rob, it was good catching up with you. Thanks, Greg. You too. Have a good rest of your week. See you. Thanks for listening to 340B Unscripted. Subscribe today on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts.